Well, good evening. It's good to be with you again tonight. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, where you'll find your place in verse 1 of that chapter. As we come to this final chapter of this letter from Paul, we come to a subject uh, that is pressing, I think, on um, everyone, every Christian's mind in any age, and that concerns the day of the Lord, or to put it another way, the day of Christ's coming. It's a subject we began to consider last week when we looked at the end of chapter 4, where Paul took up an issue related to the death of Christians and uh, what uh, those surviving Christians in Thessalonica could expect at Christ's coming with respect to those who had already died. And there Paul wrote to assure them that whether we die or whether we remain until Christ's coming, we will always be together with the Lord. For the dead will be raised at his coming, and those who remain will be caught up with those resurrected believers together with him in the clouds. And I made the case last week that I understand those events to be contemporaneous events with the final return of Christ, where in which he will not only raise dead believers, but he will bring about a final judgment upon this world. Did not take up the issue of what transpires after that with respect to a millennial reign of Christ, which I do believe that there will be a earthly millennial reign of Christ following that. But uh, the main issue at hand last week concerned uh, the question of the rapture. And I essentially argued that, uh, from my understanding, that the rapture of the believers is something that follows the tribulation of this age. Well, this evening we're going to continue along this theme, but take up the issue of the day of the Lord, looking at this coming from another perspective. That is, uh, the perspective of the judgment that Christ's return will bring. So if you found your place in chapter 5, verse 1, would you follow along with me through verse 11 as I read? Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are, people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and to be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray and ask that you would enable us to receive your holy word this evening with all faith, with all hope, with all trust, we pray that you would work in us through your word so that we might look forward to the day of the Lord, to the day of the coming of your Son and his return with eager expectation, not uh, with complacency, 
and unbelief, but rather with faith and hope and love, so that these might be indeed our breastplate and our helmet, so that we might be able to withstand in that day, the day of your wrath, which we know we are not destined for, not because of anything within us, but because of your great grace that you've shown us through Christ. So we pray that you would impart confidence to us, that you would assure us of these things, so that we might be watchful, ever waiting, and living a life that is consistent with that watchfulness, that is ready for the coming of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, that this question of when will the uh, Lord return is a question that has been on the mind of believers for many years. In fact, I suspect that any time we turn our, uh, our, our thoughts to the question of Christ's return and the end of the age, uh, the question of when comes to our mind. We're not alone in this. We can see this kind of thinking in the thinking of Jesus' own disciples. Turn with me for a moment to Mark chapter 13. To Mark chapter 13 in your Bibles. And we'll look there and see an example of this. There in Mark chapter 13, we come to what is called the Olivet Discourse. And we can find it similarly in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And also in Luke chapter 21. But here we'll look at Mark chapter 13 and take it up in verse 3. But in this text, what Jesus has just done is uh, he has told his disciples that the temple, essentially, uh, where they happen to be sitting at that moment, where they happen to be, um, that temple will be destroyed. They come and they point out all of the beautiful buildings, the wonderful architecture, and he says not one stone will be left upon another. So what ensues in that situation is that they go out and Jesus takes his seat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And in verse 3, we read, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. The end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. And so you see the question that was on the forefront of Peter and James and John and Andrew's mind was, when? When will these things be, namely what he's predicted, but also the sign of all of these things and, and that are to be accomplished? If, you were to, if we were to look at Matthew 24, 3, we see a slightly different wording of this account where they come to him and they say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? End of the end of the age. Now, if we simply understand that when Jesus spoke these words, more than likely he spoke for a much longer time than it would take us to read through the Olivet Discourse. It would be rather like uh, the sermon I preached this morning, someone taking it and summarizing it in a few paragraphs. Everyone would rejoice uh, to have the synopsis, but um, he probably spoke at much, a much greater length, which is, accounts for some of the variation that we're certainly going to find in the wording. But you see the same thing expressed and essentially said, that they're wondering when are these gonna, things going to take place, but they're looking even beyond the destruction of the temple to the day of Christ's return, to the day of the coming of the Son of Man and the end of the age. And we know from the gospel narratives that the 
disciples don't have all of these things straight in their mind. They, they still haven't quite grasped how the cross and resurrection fits within that unfolding, um, that unfolding account. But they do understand at least this, that the Son of Man, that, that is the Christ, he must come and bring an end to what they understood to be this age and bring, uh, bring in, usher in, what they understood as the age to come. What they did not fully appreciate and fully understand was that these two ages, they overlap. That we have this age and we have the age to come. And, and these two ages are, uh, this overlap of the ages is what we live in right now. The, the, this age would be consistent with the created order from creation until uh, now and, and extending until Christ's coming. And we live in that age, this age, but also we have our life is characterized by elements of what we expect in the age to come. And that's, consi that's consistent with Christ's coming and the new creation and the new heaven and the new earth. And already we enjoy some of the benefits of life in that age, but we do not yet fully see it. And at Christ's coming, we will fully see that as the, this age comes to an end and the age to come comes in its fullness. So Jesus told them that, uh, as they asked this question, when are these things going to happen? Essentially, he did not answer the question. But he told them some of the characteristics of that period of time, that period of overlap, that they should expect. Things like wars and rumors of wars. In other places, in, in the other accounts in the Synoptics, we also read of earthquakes and famines and other kinds of struggles that come upon them. But one thing that is seen in all of the synoptic accounts in that Olivet Discourse, is that Jesus tells them all those things to say that the end is not yet. That those th though these things, these, these difficulties, these trials, these tribulations must come, they are not the end. But rather, the end comes with his coming, which they don't know. They'll never know the day or the hour. As he says at the end of Mark 13, verse 32 to 37, but concerning that day or that hour... No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So he consistently taught them they could not know that time, but rather they needed to ask a different question. Not the question, when will these things be, but how can we be prepared for these things to come? Jesus goes on in that section in Mark 13, in verse 34. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Throughout those passages, we won't look in detail at all of them because our text tonight is in 1 Thessalonians, but we see calls to stay awake, we see, see calls for readiness. We see calls to endure. This is the essential question as we look toward the coming of our Lord. And it is the one that Jesus left them with when he ascended into heaven. As they were asking similar questions still, even after his resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're looking for the restoration of that kingdom, which they expect to come in the age to come. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There Jesus taught them, just as he taught in the Olivet Discourse, that one thing that must take place before he returns is that the gospel must be proclaimed in all the earth. And so he tells them, you will be my witnesses to that end in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So they, the, 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 these angels, as they spoke to them, pointed them to the fact that he will indeed come. They did not tell him when, but they did tell him that it was sure that he would come in the self-same way as he went there in Acts chapter 1. But what they were to be about as they waited for his return was the work that Jesus had given to them. Just as we read at the end of chapter 13 in Mark's gospel, how Jesus used this little parable of a master who goes on a journey and gives his servant work, commits to them uh, work to complete and calls the doorkeeper to stay awake and calls them all to be watchful for his return. Here now we see that work in its particularity and its clarity in, in, in what it is that he did commit to his disciples, namely the proclamation of the gospel in all the earth. They were be, to be about that work in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth and always be in a state of readiness in that way as they waited for the Lord to come. So in short, when we wonder when will he return, we must remember that we cannot know the answer to that question with certainty. We cannot know it with exactness. We may perceive signs and seasons, but we cannot know the day or the hour. Therefore, we must always be on our guard, watchful and ready for the coming of the Lord. This is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. It is the lesson that Paul reaffirms for us today in this letter. And I think we'll also see that it's something that we, we see consistently taught in the Old Testament as well. This is the essential question before us. If we neglect this, if we neglect this essential question of how we can be prepared, even if we're neglecting it for the sake of trying to determine when these things will take place, then we will be caught unprepared when, his, when he does come. We'll be caught off guard as though a thief were breaking in during the night. We were not ready for him. The answer is that we, to this issue, the answer to this problem is that we must remain wakeful and watchful, and Paul is going to show us how we ought to do this. How can we remain watchful and wakeful as we look to the coming of that day? Now, we probably should assume that Paul is answering a question that the Thessalonians have posed to him. You see how this passage begins. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Often when Paul uses this stylistic uh, introduction, now concerning something or other, it seems that he is answering a question. We remember that Timothy had, Paul had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how it was going for them. And upon, their, upon his return, he received the good report of their faithfulness, of their endurance. And yet Timothy, assuredly, also brought questions in hand, questions that these believers had. They had not been believers very long. Paul had not been able to spend much time with them teaching them. And he had certainly trained them in the foundational truths of the Christian faith, but they still had a lot of questions to be sure. And probably they were being unsettled by the things going on around them, the persecutions they faced, and perhaps even by false teachers. We will see that that becomes an issue in 2 Thessalonians, to be sure. But whatever's going on, 
They're wondering, at least, among other things, when will Christ return? When will he be, bring an end, maybe in their specific case, to the suffering that we ourselves are facing? So he takes up this issue, seeming to answer a question, as he has done already in this letter. You see, back in verse 9 of chapter 4, he wrote similarly, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now, Paul saying this, that you don't have any need for anyone to write to you, is a way of affirming what he's already taught them. That he didn't withhold anything. It's very different from what we encounter in verse 13 of chapter 4, when he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. There, in what we considered last week, Paul was introducing information to clear up their ignorance, to instruct the Thessalonians in something that they legitimately did not know. But in chapter 4, verse 9, and then here in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul affirms what they already do know, saying you don't need anyone to write to you. You know what, what, you, you, know what you need to know. That all the information that you need has already been delivered to you. Now, it's likely that Paul taught them the content of Jesus' teaching, some of which we read from the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13. This would have been well known and distributed to the churches as they went around, even before the Gospels had been committed to writing. Mark already may have been committed to writing at the time of this letter. Uh, we can't say that with 100% certainty, but it's a good chance that, that it already was committed to writing. How widely it was distributed, we don't know for sure. But certainly, those things that Jesus taught and that he did would have been circulated orally as people spoke about them and the disciples shared their, uh, their, their testimonies of what they had seen. But also, almost certainly, Paul had taught them about the subject from the Old Testament. And I want to give you a, couple, a sampling of texts that might have served uh, for, Paul, for Paul's uh, source of instruction. Turn with me to Joel chapter 2. To Joel chapter 2. There you'll find Joel in, in uh, what's known as the Book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets. It should come right after Hosea. So if you go to Daniel, Hosea, you'll find Joel afterward. And Joel, it's a short book, and so it's easy to skip past just three chapters. But there in Joel chapter 2, the prophet takes up the day of the Lord, and let me set a little bit of the context. In Joel chapter 1, the prophet describes a, an invasion of locusts. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what he's describing because he also describes this whatever has taken place as though it were an invasion of a marauding army there's some metaphor here either the army descriptions are a metaphor for what the locusts did in destroying the crops or the locust description is a metaphor for an army coming through and ravaging the the uh the land of, of israel one way or another one is a metaphor for the other but probably it's a locust plague and, and i su suspect that because we see in Proverbs, for example, that locusts are there compared to, um, to armies. They all march in rank without a chief commanding them. And so it would make sense, and he introduces the locusts first. So what I suggest there is that a locust plague came through and destroyed the, all the crops in Israel. And this, had a, uh, this, this seemed it was as if it, a marauding army sent by the Lord came through and ravaged the land. It had a particularly profound effect, a memorable effect on these people because not only did it threaten their own livelihood and their life and their ability to feed themselves, they were unable to feed their, uh, their cattle, and even the, uh, the famine that ensued uh, threatened wild animals. And um, this became a picture, a picture of uh, future events as well, and so that 
uh, Joel used that event to call the people to repentance. Even in this situation, that locust plague prevented them from even uh, carrying out the sacrifices they were commanded. They couldn't offer the grain offering, you see, or the uh, use wine in their, in, their, um, in their ritual service as commanded by Leviticus. It was a great and profound event in their lives. But in Joel chapter 2, he takes up a very similar message. But here he's looking forward, not back to a locust plague that threatened the land of Israel, but he's looking forward to another uh, day when destruction will come. And there we read this, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, that all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them throughout the years of all generations. So he describes the coming day of the Lord, that is, uh, that is uh, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of dread, and what it comes with is a great and powerful people, an army that spreads out on mountains and, and makes them black. And he goes on to describe this army as they're like horses, they're like war horses, they're also like thieves who who climb up uh, the, uh, into windows and break in and devour. And uh, they're, they're just absolutely destructive, utterly destructive. And what we find then in verse 11 is that this is the army of the Lord. The Lord utters his voice before his army. for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So Joel looked forward to a day when God would mete out judgment upon the earth. There's language in there that I skipped over, but it, it does speak of a judgment that comes upon all people and all nations that no one will escape. It's a cataclysmic judgment. It's a great judgment. And we end with that question, who can endure it? But what Joel does then in verse 12 is he calls the people to repentance. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. These are explicit signs of repentance. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. After he relents over disaster, and he relents over disaster, who knows whether he will not turn and relent, and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, we can go on there. Joel calls the people to repentance, to express that very clearly in a fast and a solemn assembly. And then he records in verse 18 and following how the Lord did honor that repentance, and he responded, and they restored to them their rain and their crops. And he then he promised a future day when he would pour out his spirit on all flesh which we'll come to in time, in a future date, we'll consider the prophet Joel more fully. I have plans for that. But here I simply want to point to you is that there's some very explicit teaching on the day of the Lord. And the prophet Joel called the people to prepare for that day in a very particular way. They were to prepare for that day by preparing their hearts through repentance before the Lord. It was the only way that they would be able to endure, to escape, to stand on that day in the day of the Lord. You don't need to turn there, but one other text where uh, that I, I bring to your attention is in Ezekiel 13, and you can consider it at your own point, at your own time, but 
There Ezekiel also talks about the day of the Lord. And here, his, his focus is different. He's confronting false prophets in Israel. Prophets who, during a time when God was bringing judgment upon the people of Israel, upon the people of Judah, were prophesying of peace and saying that there will be peace and there will be security and God will bring prosperity once again. And God had not sent these false prophets and so he sent Ezekiel to confront them. And he says this very specifically, that the Lord, uh, they failed in, in prophesying of peace because... They did not, he says, you have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. There he uses imagery of building up a wall that would enable the people of Israel to stand in the day of battle. And we say, well, what is this wall? What is it that Ezekiel is confronting these false prophets over? What, would they, what should they have called the people to do? And I suggest to you that the wall was the same thing that Joel spoke about. It's not a Literal wall, it's a metaphor for repentance, for preparing oneself for the day of the Lord by repenting before the Lord and humbling oneself and turning to Him in faith and doing those things in that context in Israel, fulfilling the law in terms of His commandments by loving God with their whole heart and soul and mind and strength and loving their neighbors as themselves. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, routinely failed to do those things. That's why God brought these judgments. Now, throughout the Old Testament then, God brought judgments through armies like the armies of Babylon, like the armies of Syria, Assyria, excuse me, and these were like prototypes, if you will, of that ultimate climactic day of the Lord. So, for instance, when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C., it was the fulfillment of day of the Lord prophecies, but only in part a prototype, if you will, that prefigured that final climactic day of the Lord about which these Old Testament prophets spoke. So we can't say for sure whether Paul instructed from Joel 2 or Ezekiel 13 or some of the other oh, dozen and a half texts that might be relevant in that instruction. But we can say with a great degree of, high degree of confidence that Paul would have instructed them on this subject from the Old Testament and now as he writes to them again, as they've asked questions about when this will happen, he tells them, you don't need anyone to write to you. You have all that you need. You have been instructed. He goes on to say, for you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, of course, Paul will instruct them, and he will write to them and give them information about this day of the Lord. But what I want you to, to understand or to recognize is the rhetorical effect of what Paul has just said. Let me illustrate it for you. Imagine a child who is learning geometry or physics or some difficult subject, and, and she has finished her course of study, finished the textbook, and finished the year of study, and done her final exams, and done quite well. And then she goes to her locker at school, or she's homeschooled, and she's talking with some of the children, and who, who studied with her, and they start talking about things that she's not learned and saying, well, there's a lot more to learn in this subject matter, and, and um, she starts to become nervous and fearful, like she somehow missed something. She didn't quite grasp it all. She doesn't really comprehend or understand this subject that she learned so well. And she becomes a little bit discouraged and begins to doubt herself and, and starts to ask questions of her teacher and say, what did I miss or what did we not learn? And the teacher takes her aside and says, no, you've learned everything. You've done quite well on your exams. Actually, those students who you overheard did not do quite well on theirs. And um, they're just pulling your chain. They're pulling your leg. And don't worry about what they're saying. 
know that you have grasped the complexity of this subject and you're ready to advance to the next subject in math. And that would be very encouraging to the student and then she would no longer be discouraged by these doubts that arise when she hears people talking about things she does not understand and has never heard of but don't seem to jive with what she's already heard from her teacher. In our own context, we are often unsettled by the seeming complexity of the subject of eschatology. When we think about the coming of our Lord. We can reflect on, uh, on times in the past when many would gather for prophecy conferences and you might see charts laid out before you that would chart out the whole course of events that would take place and have maps of what the kingdom would look like in the millennial kingdom and all of these kinds of things and so complex and so difficult and so shocking and, and hard to wrap our minds around and figure out. And we wonder, well, where do we find those things and how can we learn those things? And it's just overwhelming. What I want to suggest to you is that this subject should not be, we should not consider it so complex. It's much simpler than we really realize. It's not because the Bible has no difficulties on this subject. It's not because uh, there is no complexity whatsoever. But I want to suggest to you that the fundamental aspects are quite simple and they are sufficient for us to get busy living faithfully in this period of time in which these two ages overlap. And it comes back to that point about how the when questions are not the essential questions. The essential question is how can I be prepared now? If I make the when questions essential and I make the historical framework for these things, the overriding thing that, that, that guides all of my thoughts about eschatology, it gets exceedingly complex and now I'm trying to divide text and trying to fit things here and see how this, well, it just gets so confusing so quickly. But then consider how Jesus, every time they asked him when, and the disciples too, after they had learned and understood this, when people asked them when and wanted to know about times and seasons, they redirected their attention not to the question of when, but preparedness, to readiness. It reminded them that no one knows the day of the hour, right? Even what Jesus said as he ascended, you cannot know that day or the hour which the Father has fixed in his authority. But we do know this fundamental truth. It is coming. He will surely come. We do know this second fundamental truth. When he comes, he will surely judge. He will surely stand as the judge of the living and the dead. We do know this essential truth, that if we are to escape that judgment, we will only escape it by being in him. We will not escape it by being found apart from him. We will surely not escape it by simply having a number of charts and timelines. If that does not lead us finally to have our faith fully in him. We're going to see that from Paul to, to be sure. But I want to say it now because it's so important. The fundamental truths that should undergird our eschatology are much simpler than I think we allow. It helps us then to grapple with all of the complexities and all the difficulties to get busy living a life that is faithful, even when we cannot answer all of the questions about how to integrate all of the material that we find within Scripture. We know that Christ will return. We know that when he does, he will complete his saving work by bringing an end to our suffering and trials. We know that he will also stand as judge, judging all who did not believe the gospel. Finally, we know that he will come unexpectedly. Every other detail he gives us is meant to encourage us not to be overcome by worry, but rather to persevere as we wait for that day. For nothing that we did not ex that we find unexpected was unanticipated by him. And he shows that in all the things that he says about it. And so when those things would unsettle us, we can remember his words, remember that he is sure, and trust him as we wait for that day. 
Now, with all that lengthy introduction with the Old Testament and with the gospel teaching concerning these things, let's look again more fully at what Paul has to say here, which I think is fully consistent with those things that we find in the Olivet Discourse, fully consistent with those things that we find in the Old Testament. What Paul presents to us is that there are two kinds of people as we look forward to that day. There are sleepers and there are watchers. There are sleepers and there are watchers. That is to say, there are those who will be ready for that day and there are those who will not. Look at what Paul says in verse 2 and onward. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. I don't need to supply you an illustration here. Paul gives you one that's very suitable. You can imagine a woman who is uh, ready to give birth. She is in her eighth or ninth month of pregnancy. She knows that it will become, that it'll come soon, but she does not know precisely when it will come. And so she goes about her day, and she's at the grocery store, and suddenly the labor pains come upon her. She surely was not expecting it because she wouldn't have gone to the grocery store. But on the other hand, she was expecting it because she was in her eighth or ninth month. But if she really was expecting it, she would have been at the hospital already in the waiting room. You see that kind of imagery that Paul uses, is that that's what the day of the Lord will come. It will come like that. Suddenly, the labor pains come upon us. And it's not to say that we are in the ninth month or the sixth month or uh, uh, in, in, in that metaphorical sense. It's just to say that we don't know when it will come. And the way that that's characterized by people who aren't expecting him to come, for whom he will come like a thief in the night, is they're saying there is peace and security. Then the sudden destruction will come upon them. Now, this is not to say that we as Christians cannot reflect on our time and be thankful that there is peace and security in the place we live and in the time we live in or that there is a general level of prosperity. Some uh, in older generations uh, lived through the first, or the, not the first anymore most likely, but the second world war, and they know what it's like to live through uh, worldwide uh, conflict, one that threatens every place on this globe. In the time that's elapsed since then. We've lived through a number of other wars, nothing quite so big, although there's always been that constant rumor of war, that threat of uh, catastrophe. You think of the Cold War period especially, when there was the constant threat of nuclear conflict. And yet people might see, you, you think you come upon the end of that period when the Soviet Union broke down some years ago, and people, well, now there's peace, now there's security. Now that will usher in a new stage of, of prosperity. And the question is not, can we comment on those things and observe history and re recognize that, yeah, this is a relatively peaceful time in comparison to other periods in history. But the question is, what are we hoping in? Where is our hope? When these people are saying there is peace and security, the idea is, my life is good, I have no worries, and I'm lulled into a sense of complacency concerning the coming of Christ. I'm lulled into a sense of complacency concerning the state of my own soul. I'm lulled into a sense of complacency. So I'm not looking for his coming, and I'm not preparing for that day. It's like, rather like Pearl Harbor, if you think. There was a war going on at the outset of our entrance into World War II. Maybe those sailors who were there at Pearl Harbor that Sunday morning should have been expecting attack an attack at any moment. But we, as a country, were not yet involved in the war. And we know from the stories that many were sleeping. Many were not being watchful. Many were not prepared for what was about to take place on that day. Only a few voices were looking and watching for it, and then a great destruction came upon them. 
And you can, you can think about that historical situation and see that is kind of like what we could expect when we think about the day of the Lord. We're not, as Christians, to be, think like this. We're to rather have that mindset that you would find on a ship in the Navy when it goes to sea. There may be no war at hand. There may, may be nothing great going on in terms of threats to this ship, and yet there is never a moment where every single crew member on that ship is asleep. Of course, people sleep, and that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying Christians should never sleep. We know that, of course, but rather have that constant state of watchfulness, like what you would find on a ship at sea, whether in peace or wartime. There's always someone looking out. There's always someone navigating the ship. Even the captain, especially, even when he sleeps, he always has a phone next to his head and is ready in a moment to wake up, to throw on his uniform, and to be to the bridge or into the combat center in less than a minute. And the crew, likewise, is ready to respond when they hear the alarm for general quarters, that they can do likewise and be at the station that they're to be at at any moment. They're in a constant state of readiness, a constant state of watchfulness, whether there is peace or whether there is war, whether there is a threat or there seems to be none. That is what you would find when you find a ship that is ready at watch. And so likewise as Christians were to have that same kind of readiness when we look for the coming of Christ, when we look for the day of the Lord. But what does that watchfulness look like? What is true watchfulness? Paul will explain it to us as we go on. He tells us that on the one hand, it's, it's characterized by a uh, not being one who's in darkness. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, he says, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as other do, others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. We're wakeful, we're sober, we're not like sleepers who are sleep, uh, uh, living at night and they're sleeping, and we're not like drunkards who are getting drunk at night, but we're ready for what may come our way because we know, because we are informed that the day of the Lord is coming. If you ask an unbeliever, with, who has no reference to the Bible, how will this world come to an end? They will say, if we don't destroy it by our own foolishness as humanity, the universe will end in something called heat death many, many millions of years from now or something like that. They're not watchful. They're not looking for it to come. But we know that there is a way in which this whole creation comes to an its end. It comes to its end by the coming of our Lord. Whereas though we are in the light, they are like people in darkness and a fog, like people who are sleeping and not paying attention. And so we are watchful by living our life with reference to that certain event, though we do not know when it will come. Because we know that it will come, we prepare even now by cultivating those attitudes that are right, the attitudes of repentance and faith that issue forth in the kind of love that Christ commands of us, the kind of faith that holds fast to the things that we've learned and that we've been taught, that we believed, the kind of faith that endures every trial, that endures many hardships. That's the kind of watchfulness that we're called to. And you can see it in the way that Paul continues in verse 8, where he takes up an image of a breastplate and a helmet. It's like what uh, Ezekiel described as the wall. The prophets of Israel were to build a proper wall. They were to go out into the breach and build a wall that was rooted in calls to repentance. 
Here Paul uses different imagery, but the same idea. We're to put on a breastplate. We're to put on a helmet. And again, you have this idea of being wakeful. When a soldier goes to take his rest, he takes off his armor. But when he gets ready, when he readies himself to go and stand watch, or if he knows that he might need to wake up at a moment, he might sleep in his armor with his sword at hand so that he is always ready. So he puts on this breastplate, he puts on this helmet to ready himself for what may come his way. But our breastplate is not made of iron or brass, nor is our helmet made of such materials. Our breastplate is made of faith and love and our helmet of the hope of salvation. The similar imagery that Paul uses in Ephesians when he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. We are told to put on the breastplate of faith and love. These two essential elements of the Christian life we must not miss. We remember from 1 John as we went through John's epistles and we remembered how frequently he taught us concerning the necessity of faith in the Christian life. That the true Christian is the one who holds fast to this confession. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is the Christ who came in the flesh and who gave his life for our sake as a propitiation, as a substitutionary sacrifice in our place. Through faith in him, the one who is risen, the one who is ascendant, the one who will come again, we are saved from our sins. All of that we remember and we recall from 1 John, and we've seen it here in 1 Thessalonians also. That is the substance of our faith, what we believe, and it's a practical faith because it inspires the way that we live, what we say to our neighbors, holding forth that same gospel, how we value things in this life. But faith, true faith, never sits alone. It is accompanied by good works. It's not the good works that might merit our salvation. We could never supply the works that are necessary to merit any favor from God. Our salvation is by grace and grace alone. But true faith is marked by good works. It will necessarily produce good works, and those works can be summarized under the category of love, as John frequently called us, love one another. And so we're not surprised, for instance, as we think back to Matthew chapter 25 and that Olivet Discourse, as Matthew has it, as he concludes, and he speaks about that final judgment. He speaks about a judgment that is... Uh, a, a separation of those who are like sheep and those who are like goats. And he says this to those who are like sheep, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And as that passage unfolds, we see that the person who hears that, those words and that parable says to the master, when did I do these things? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But very much the opposite, he says, to those who are categorized as the goats. They did not do those things because they did not do it to the least of these, my brothers, he said. They did not exhibit the love that flows from a true and genuine faith. But we are to be a people who are marked by this faith that issues forth in a true love, as Paul has shown us also in 1 Thessalonians, again and again. We remember when he spoke concerning brotherly love, 
another subject that Thessalonians needed no instruction on. And yet he did instruct them and encourage them to continue likewise in that life of faith and love. And so he encourages us to do that. And that is what constitutes our readiness for the day of the Lord in terms of putting on that breastplate. And as that helmet, we put on the hope of our salvation, which is simply to say we look to this coming and we recognize that the day of the Lord for us is not a day of deep darkness. It's not a day of dread. It's not at all any of those things, though it is for the world a day of deep darkness and it is for the world a day of deep dread and it is for the world an outpouring of the wrath of God upon those who refuse to believe the gospel. For us, it is not that kind of day. Why? Because of what Paul goes on to say. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. We have this helmet, this hope of salvation, because the wrath of God was poured out on him, not on you. Not on me. If you are in Christ, if I am in Christ, by faith, he bore the wrath of God when he hung upon that tree in your place, in our place, so that we who are in him never need to bear it ourselves. And so whether we are awake or asleep, that is to use that Pauline language that we've seen already, whether we are alive or we have already passed away on this day, if we are in him, we will live in him. And this is our hope, our certain hope of salvation. So we look forward to that day with this armor, this wall, to use Ezekiel's imagery again, this armor that we wear that is the armor that protects us on the day of the Lord. We're not protected from the wrath of God because he takes us away before it comes. In a sense, yes, as we saw in the last passage, but we're protected as, though, as, as those who are in the one who is our saving ark. Like that ark that protected Noah from the flood. He is the one who is our protector in that day, our refuge. Ultimately, our armor, our wall, if we are in him. Because he bore God's wrath for us. And this should encourage us. Even as Paul says, therefore, encourage one another. And build one another up just as you are doing. We've seen him again say the same words as verse 18 at the end of chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Once again, with his teaching, that he simply is reaffirming to them. He says, likewise, encourage one another. And we ought also to encourage one another as we see that day drawing near. We cannot know when that day will come. But we can know, certainly, that that day will come. Because we know certainly that that day will come, and we know certainly that God's wrath has already been poured out on one who bears it for us, we can approach that day and look to that day with full faith and full assurance. We will be spared that judgment on that day if we are found in him. So we are called always to be prepared by living this life of faith by enduring whatever hardships might come away. Here I simply want to conclude by saying this. What are we doing but expounding that simple gospel? We have said 
pointed to again and again. It's as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And in that passage, Paul would then expound that gospel by pointing the Corinthians to this same day, the day of Christ's coming, the day of their salvation, as he called them to hold fast to the very gospel, that good news that he preached to them at first. This is what we're holding to. This is simple eschatology that we are given in the New Testament. Whatever complexity we might find, at least we can know, it really can be summarized and simplified to this basic message, this message of the gospel that encourages us to look forward to that day with hope, not with fear, but with readiness that is rooted in faith and hope and love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we indeed might ready ourselves in this way for that day by remembering the gospel of our salvation as we see the day drawing near, by holding it fast, by living it out in our lives, that is, the implications of these truths in our lives, so that our faith might issue forth in love and might always be coupled with hope. May we not miss these basic truths, Lord, as we grow and increase in our understanding of the things to come. May we not lose sight of these truths that buoy and anchor our hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.